0: Section twenty nine of the History of Chemistry This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Karen Turton. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson Volume one, chapter eight of the attempts to establish a theory in chemistry part five. Rene Antoine Fichalt Esquire. Signor de Rameur, certainly one of the most extraordinary men of his age, was born at Rochelle in 1683. He went to the school of Rochelle, and afterwards studied philosophy under the Jesuits at Poitiers. Hence he went to Bourges, to which one of his uncles, canon of the holy chapel in that city, had invited him. At this time he was only seventeen years of age, yet his parents ventured to entrust a younger brother to his care and this care he discharged with all the fidelity and sagacity of a much older man. Here he devoted himself to mathematics and physics, and he soon after went to Paris to improve the happy talents which he had received from nature. He was fortunate enough to meet with a friend and relation in the president, Henault, equally devoted to study with himself, equally eager for information, and possessed of equal honor and integrity, and equally promising talents. He came to Paris in 1703. In 1708 he was admitted into the Academy of Sciences in the situation of eleve of M. Varignon, vacant by the promotion of M. Sarin to the rank of associate. The first papers of his which were inserted in the memoirs of the Academy were geometrical. He gave a general method of finding an infinity of curves described by the extremity of a straight line the other extremity of which passing along the surface of a given curve is always obliged to pass through the same point. Next year he gave a geometrical work on develops but this was the last of his mathematical tracts. He was discharged by the Academy with the task of giving a description of the arts, and his taste for natural history began to draw to that study the greatest part of his attention. His first work as a naturalist was his observations on the formation of shells. It was unknown whether shells increased by intussusception, like animal bodies, or by the exterior and successive addition of new parts. By a set of delicate observations, he showed that shells were formed by the addition of new parts and that this was the cause of the variety of colour, shape, and size which they usually affect. His observations on snails, with a view to the way in which their shells are formed, led him to the discovery of a singular insect, which not only lives on snails, but in the inside of their bodies, from which it never stirs till driven out by the snail. During the same year, he wrote his curious paper on the silk of spiders. The experiments of M. Bone had shown that spiders could spin a silk that might be usefully employed. But it remained to be seen whether these creatures could be fed with profit, and in sufficiently great numbers to produce a sufficient quantity of silk to be of use. Rumer undertook this disagreeable task, and showed that spiders could not be fed together without attacking and destroying one another. The next research which he undertook was to discover in what way certain sea animals are capable of attaching themselves to fixed bodies, and again disengaging themselves at pleasure he discovered the various threads and pinny which some of them possess for this purpose and the prodigious number of limbs by which the sea-star is enabled to attach itself to solid bodies other animals employ a kind of cement to glue themselves to those substances to which they are attached while some fix themselves by forming a vacuum in the interval between themselves and the solid substances to which they are attached it was at this point that he found great quantities of the boosanum which yielded the purple dye of the ancients upon the coast of poitou he observed also that the stones and little sandy ridges round which the shellfish had collected were covered with a kind of oval grains some of which were white and others of a yellowish colour and having collected and squeezed some of these upon the sleeve of his shirt so as to wet it with the liquid which they contained he was agreeably surprised in about half an hour to find the wetted spot assume a beautiful purple colour which was not discharged by washing he collected a number of these grains, and carrying them to his apartment, bruised and squeezed different parcels of them upon bits of linen. But to his great surprise, after two or three hours, no colour appeared on the wetted part. But at the same time, two or three spots of the plaster at the window, on which drops of the liquid had fallen, had become purple, though the day was cloudy. On carrying the pieces of linen to the window, and leaving them there, they also acquired a purple colour. It was the action of light, then, on the liquor which caused it to tinge the linen he found likewise that when the colouring matter was put into a phial which filled it completely it remained unchanged but when the phial was not full and was badly corked it acquired colour from these facts it is evident that the purple colour is owing to the joint action of the light and the oxygen of the atmosphere upon the liquor of the shellfish. about this time likewise he made experiments upon a subject which attracted the attention of mechanicians to determine whether the strength of a cord was greater or less, or equal to the joint strength of all the fibres which compose it. The result of Rumer's experiments was that the strength of the cord is less than that of all the fibres of which it is composed. Hence it follows that the less that a cord differs from an assemblage of straight fibres, the stronger it is. This, at that time considered as a singular mechanical paradox, was afterwards elucidated by M. Duchamel. It was a popular opinion of all the inhabitants of the seashore that when the claws of crabs lobsters etc are lost by any means they are gradually replaced by others and that the animal in a short time becomes as perfect as at first this opinion was ridiculed by men of science as inconsistent with all our notions of true philosophy Rumor subjected it to the test of experiment by removing the claws of these animals and keeping them alone for the requisite time in sea-water new claws soon sprang out and perfectly replaced those that had been removed thus the common opinion was verified and the contemptuous smile of a half-learned man of science was shown to be the result of ignorance not of knowledge Rumor was not so fortunate in his attempts to explain the nature of the shock given by the torpedo which we now know to be an electric shock produced by a peculiar apparatus within the animal Rumor endeavored to prove from dissection that the shock was owing to the prodigious rapidity of the blow given by the animal in consequence of a peculiar structure of its muscles the turquoise was, at that time, as it still is, considerably admired in consequence of the beauty of its colour. Persia was the country from which this precious stone came, and it was at that time considered as the only country in the universe where it occurred. Rumour made a set of experiments on the subject, and showed that the fossil bones found in languedoc, when exposed to a certain heat, assume the same beautiful green colour, and become turquoises equally beautiful with the Persian. It is now known that the true Persian turquoise, the calamite of mineralogists, is quite different from fossil bones coloured with copper. So far, therefore, Rumer deceived himself by these experiments, but at that time chemical knowledge was too imperfect to enable him to subject Persian turquoise to an analysis and determine its constitution. About the same period he undertook an investigation of the nature of imitation pearls, which resemble the true pearls so closely that it is very difficult from appearances to distinguish the true from the false he showed that the substance which gave the false pearls their colour and lustre was taken from a small fish called by the french able or ablet he likewise undertook an investigation of the origin of true pearls and showed that they were indebted for their production to a disease of the animal it is now known that the introduction of any solid body as a grain of sand within the shell of the living pearl shellfish gives occasion to the formation of pearl. Linnaeus boasted that he knew a method of forming artificial pearls, and doubtless his process was merely introducing some solid particle of matter into the living shell. Pearls consist of alternate layers of carbonate of lime and animal membrane, and the colour and lustre to which they owe their value depends on the thinness of the alternate coats. The next paper of rumour was an account of the rivers in France whose sand yielded gold dust, and the method employed to extract the gold. This paper will well repay the labour of a perusal. It owes its interest in a great measure to the way in which the facts are laid before the reader. His paper on the prodigious bank of fossil shells, at terrain, from which the inhabitants draw manure in such quantities for their fields, deserves attention in a geological point of view. But his paper on flints and stones is not so valuable. It consists in speculations which, from the infant state of chemical analysis when he wrote, could not be expected to lead to correct conclusions. I pass over many of the papers of this most indefatigable man, because they are not connected with chemistry, but his history of insects constitutes a charming book, and contains a prodigious number of facts of the most curious and important nature. This book alone, supposing rumour had done nothing else, would have been sufficient to have immortalised the author. In the year 1722, he published his work on the art of converting iron into steel and of softening cast iron at that time no steel whatever was made in france the nation was supplied with that indispensable article from foreign countries chiefly from germany the object of Rumer's book was to teach his countrymen the art of making steel and if possible to explain the nature of the process by which iron is changed into steel rumour concluded from his experiments that steel is iron impregnated with sulphurous and saline matters the word sulphurous as at that time used was nearly synonymous with our present term combustible the process which he found to answer and which he recommends to be followed was to mix together four parts of soot two parts of charcoal powder two parts of wood ashes and one and a half parts of common salt the iron bars to be converted into steel were surrounded with this mixture and kept red-hot till converted into steel. Rumer's notion of the difference between iron and steel was an approximation to the truth. The saline matters, which he added, do not enter into the composition of the steel, and if they did, so far from improving they would injure its qualities. But the charcoal and soot, which consist chiefly of carbon, really produce the desired effect. For steel is a combination of iron and carbon. In consequence of these experiments of rumour it came to be an opinion entertained by chemists that steel differed from iron merely by containing a greater proportion of phlogiston for the charcoal and soot with which the iron bars were surrounded was considered as consisting almost entirely of phlogiston and the only useful purpose which they could serve was supposed to be to furnish phlogiston this opinion continued prevalent till it was overturned towards the end of the last century First, by the experiments of Bergman, and afterwards by those of Berthelet, Vanderbond, and monk published in the Memoirs of the French Academy for 1786, page 132. In this elaborate memoir, the authors take a view of all the different processes followed in bringing iron from the ore to the state of steel. They then give an account of the researches of Rumor and Bergman, and lastly relate their own experiments, from which they finally draw as a conclusion that steel is a compound of iron and carbon. The regent Orleans, who at that time administered the affairs of France, thought that this work of Rumor was deserving a reward, and accordingly offered him a pension of 12,000 livres. Rumor requested of the regent that this pension should be given in the name of the academy, that after his death it should continue. And be devoted to defray the necessary expenses towards bringing the arts into a state of perfection. The request was granted and the letters patent made out on the twenty second of December, seventeen twenty two. At that time, tin plate as well as seal was not made in France, but all the tin plates wanted were brought from Germany, where the processes followed were kept profoundly secret. Rumour undertook to discover a method of tinning iron sufficiently cheap to admit the article to be manufactured in France, and he succeeded. The difficulty consisted in removing the scales with which the iron plates, as prepared, were always covered. These scales consist of a vitrified oxide of iron, to which the tin will not unite. Rumour found that when these plates are steeped in water, acidulated by means of bran, and then allowed to rust in stoves, the scales become loose. And are easily detached by rubbing the plates with sand. If, after being thus cleansed, they are plunged into melted tin covered with a little tallow to prevent oxidizement, they are easily tinned. In consequence of this explanation of the process by rumour, tin plate manufactories were speedily established in different parts of France. It was about the same time, or only a little before it, that the tin plate manufactories were first started in England. The English tin plate was much more beautiful than the German, and therefore immediately preferred to it because in germany the iron was converted into plates by hammering whereas in england it was rolled out this made it much smoother and consequently more beautiful another art at that time unknown in france and indeed in every part of europe except saxony was the art of making porcelain a name given to the beautiful translucent stoneware which was brought from china and japan rumour undertook to discover the process employed in making it he procured specimens of porcelain from china and japan and also of the imitations of those vessels at that time made in various parts of france and other european countries the true porcelain remained unaltered though exposed to the most violent heat which he was capable of producing but the imitations in a furnace heated by no means violently melted into a perfect glass hence he concluded that the imitation porcelains were merely glass not heated sufficiently to be brought into fusion but true porcelain he conceived to be composed of two different ingredients one of which is capable of resisting the most violent heat which can be raised but the other when heated sufficiently melts into a glass it is this last ingredient that gives porcelain its translucency while the other makes it refractory in the fire this opinion of rumour was soon after confirmed by father dentroclus a french missionary in china who sent some time after a memoir to the academy describing the mode followed by the chinese in the manufactory of their porcelain two substances are employed by them, the one called kaolin, and the other petunce. It is now known that kaolin is what we call porcelain clay, and that petunce is a fine white felspar. Felspar is fusible in a violent heat, but porcelain clay is refractory in the highest temperatures that we have it in our power to produce in furnaces. Rumor made another curious observation on glass, which has been, since his time, employed very successfully to explain the appearance of many of our trap-rocks. If a glass vessel, properly secured in sand, be raised to a red heat and then allowed to cool very slowly, it puts off the appearance of glass and assumes that of stoneware or porcelain. Vessels thus altered have received the name of rumorous porcelain. They are much more refractory than glass, and therefore may be exposed to a pretty strong red heat without any danger of softening or losing their shape this shape is occasioned by the glass being kept long in a soft state the various substances of which it is composed are at liberty to exercise their affinities and to crystallize this makes the vessel lose its glassy structure altogether in like manner it was found by sir james hall and mr gregory watt that when common greenstone was heated sufficiently and then rapidly cooled it melted and concreted into a glass but if after having been melted it was allowed to cool exceedingly slowly the constituents again crystallized and arranged themselves as at first so that a true green stone was again formed in the same way lavas from a volcano either assume the appearance of slag or of stone according as they have cooled rapidly or slowly many of the lavas from vesuvius cannot be distinguished from our green stones rumours labours upon the thermometer must not be omitted here because he gave his name to a thermometer which was long used in france and in other parts of europe the first person that brought thermometers into a state capable of being compared with each other was sir isaac newton in a paper published in the philosophical transactions for 1701 theronite of amsterdam was the first person that put newton's method in practice by fixing two points on his scale the freezing water point and the boiling water point and dividing the interval between them into one hundred and eighty degrees but no fixed point existed in the thermometers employed in france everyone graduating them according to his fancy so that no two thermometers could be compared together rumour graduated his thermometers by plunging them into freezing water or a mixture of snow and water this point was marked zero and was called the freezing water point the liquid used in his thermometers was spirit of wine he took care that it should be always of the same strength and the interval between the point of freezing and boiling water was divided into eighty degrees to look afterwards rectified this thermometer by substituting mercury for spirit of wine this not only enabled the thermometer to be used to measure higher temperatures but corrected an obvious error which existed in all the thermometers constructed upon Rumer's principle For spirit of wine cannot bear a temperature of eighty degrees rumour without being dissipated into vapour absolute alcohol boiling at a hundred and sixty two degrees two-thirds it is obvious from this that the boiling point in Rumer's thermometer could not be accurate and that it would vary according to the quantity of empty space left above the alcohol finally he contrived a method of hatching chickens by means of artificial heat as is practised in egypt we are indebted to him also for a set of important observations on the organs of digestion in birds he showed that in birds of prey which live wholly upon animal food digestion is performed by solvents in the stomach as is the case with digestion in man while those birds that live upon vegetable food have a very powerful stomach or gizzard capable of triturating the seeds which they swallow to facilitate this triturating process these fowls are in the habit of swallowing small pebbles end of section twenty nine